As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me a rare event happening. Someone I consider my teacher, whom I have wanted to know for over two decades. Her name is Roshi Joan Halifax. I am deeply honored to have you here, Roshi Joan, so welcome in. Thank you so much. Mm. Roshi Joan is obviously a teacher. She's the abbot and founder of Upaya Zen Center. She is a social activist. She is an author. Her latest book is called Standing at the Edge, and both that book and a previous book called The Fruitful Darkness sit right next to my morning meditation space. And in the morning, I read passages from either one or both. It is a real blessing to have you here. And I want to tell you a little story, which I think happened in the early 2000s, Roshi Joan, that I think I was sent to a presentation of yours or a talk of yours at some small um, health food store in the East Village in the early 2000s. And after that talk, and I believe it was like right after my first yoga teacher training, which happened in 1998-99. And after that first talk, I knew that at some point I would study with you. I just didn't know how because you were a Buddhist and I didn't understand that I could also be a Buddhist. <laughs> I had no idea. Uh. <laughs> and the whole thing scared me, but, but something inside of me was ringing your name all this time. When I moved to Santa Fe in March 2020, I've shared this with you before, I thought that you and Upaya were in Los Angeles for some reason, and I got here. We went driving for one of our first hikes here. We were all just starry-eyed and, and in love with this place and still deciding if we would stay. And I passed by the Zen Center, and I was like, oh, my God, I think that's... And I started Googling and looking... And I figured out that I was here. And we're literally across the mountain from one another right now, even though we barely see each other because of the pandemic. So it's a very special thing is what I'm trying to explain to my listener that you're here. Um, I want to start with a recent blog that you wrote called True Continuum, which is about the time in which you met Thich Nhat Hanh. The war in Vietnam was raging. You were super young, mid-60s. The civil rights movement, the anti-war movement were converging. You were in your 20s. There was a frontier of consciousness that was focused on freedom, you write, the environment, on justice, on nonviolence. And yet for so many of us, you say, the sense of moral outrage toward our government was anything but nonviolent. It harkens, obviously, right back to this very moment in time you go on to say that in the midst of this wild psychosocial tangle arrived a young monk traveling from France to the U.S. to urge our country to stop bombing his country, Vietnam. 
His name was Thich Nhat Hanh. During his time on the East Coast, he and thousands of you joined a vast peace march down Fifth Avenue in New York City. And you recall that this humble, brown-clad monk did something very curious during that march. While thousands pressed forward anxiously and quickly making their way down Fifth Avenue, he walked extremely slowly and mindfully, causing great consternation, I can only imagine, to the police and many who did not understand what this monk was doing. And it was during this strange moment, you say, that you realized that being a social activist was not necessarily separate from being contemplative. And your heart and mind changed, your life changed. He, Thich Nhat Hanh, for you and so many others, was the model of a socially engaged Buddhist. And because of him, many thousands, millions have opened uh, lives to the path of socially engaged Buddhism. I am currently in the training that you're running. It's a year-long training, socially engaged Buddhist training. And that is kind of where I want to rest our attention for the moment, because I think many of us need to see that the confluence of activism and contemplative life can exist. And I need to thank you for that, because I'd never really realized that until now. Mm. Yeah, it, it it is the right vitamin. Uh, it was the right vitamin uh, decades ago, and it continues to be the, the right vitamin today. Mm. Um, because I, I feel that um, our lives can be so uh, corrupted, disrupted, um, really undermined by a sense of futility, by uh, anger, um, and uh, that the contemplative practice uh, that uh, you know so well and I know so well gives one grounding, provides a means for being very rooted and um, makes it possible for one to see, you know, the truth of suffering, to see cause and effect, but also to understand the truth of impermanence. All this is going to change for better or for worse. So it is a very interesting, if you will, intervention into the, the tendency and even addiction to uh, anxiety. Hmm. I'm on page 24 of The Fruitful Darkness, and I read this one often. It's very dog-eared and actually went <laughs> through a flood, and I saved it from the flood, and it's you know makes that very crackly, delicious crackly sound. Bottom of page 24, silence is where we learn to listen, where we learn to see. Holding silence, being held by stillness, Buddhists and tribal people go alone to the wilderness to, quote, stop and see, to renew their vision, to enter the mind ground, to hear the truth, to return to the knowledge of the extensiveness of self and the truth of no self. This has helped me tremendously in this time to realize that I actually don't need to be as vocal in these social media realms as I thought I once did. And I can just do my work from here, both on myself and in my small individual conversations and actions to help heal things. I don't have to be shouting into a void. And I wanted my listener to hear that because I think that's uh, an important teaching for right now that silence. You know, I'd love to ask you, because um, I think it's, it's an odd question, but I'd love to ask you, Elena, um, what do you think silence is? 
Well, I know that I'm touching it when I come into my closet, which is where I have my morning sitting space. And I have a small, humble altar with one of Thich Nhat Hanh's circles on it. And I sit. And I don't particularly do anything anymore. I spent years practicing all these different breath work, blah, blah, all this stuff that I had to do. And, duh. and now I just sit. And I feel like that's when I experience that quality, the, the quality of silence, the, the experience of nothing. Mm. Beautiful. I, I think silence means different things to different people, but I also feel that you and I share the same perspective on silence. It really points toward an internal experience of fundamental openness. That is a good way to think about it. <laughs> Fundamental openness. Because it doesn't preclude action. And it doesn't preclude inaction. Because there's strength in inaction as well. Beautiful. Yeah, I just want to say something about that. Because I think that um, the experience of stillness and the experience of silence, which are uh, interlinked, in relation to what we've been exploring together, Elena, in the socially engaged Buddhist training, often we think that uh, silence and stillness has to do with passivity. And actually what we're looking at and why I keep going back in my collegial group again and again, this really has to do with an internal state. Can we really drop into not knowing or this deep openness and not have the chatter of our opinions mediating our perceptions? Um, so that's mm. what I mean by silence. It's really uh, an internal state and stillness the same. You know, have in this churning world, um, have the capacity to uh, serve but not from uh, anxiety and busyness, but to be in this uh, non-mediated, uh, emergent relationship with things as they are. And that, for me, is compassion. Hmm. On page eight of Standing at the Edge at the Bottom, you were still, you were speaking about this time that we've just opened with. We, we wanted to change the world, you said, and we wanted a way to work with our good aspirations, to not lose them, nor get lost in them. In this atmosphere of social and political conflict, I began reading books about Buddhism, teaching myself to meditate, met the young Vietnamese Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, and through his example, I was drawn to Buddhism because it directly addresses the causes of individual and social suffering. And because its core teaching says that transforming anguish is the path to freedom and the well-being of our world. I feel like you've just hit on that core teaching where even when we're seeing suffering, and I'm thinking about my listener right now too, when you're seeing suffering, can you from a place of deep silence, stillness in your body become the solution through compassion that you want to see. Mm. Uh, I think that's kind of where it is. You went on to say that the Buddha emphasized inquiry, curiosity, and investigation as tools of the path. 
and that he did not recommend we avoid, deny, or valorize suffering. And I appreciate that because the whole idea of not knowing was quite foreign to me when I started to you know, wrap my mind around it. And through this training, I've realized that that's actually the best plan. <laughs> the not knowing, because then you can be with things as they are. You can be with the emergent situation as it is in a state of compassion without trying to like fix it. Well, you know, the Buddha's time was also characterized by great churn. And um, I think that uh, one of the things that's so interesting, at least this is my perspective, it, not all share this, but I look uh, at Buddha as socially engaged in the sense that um, when the monastic community was forming, instead of um, creating a hierarchical system, uh, which would reflect the structures of India, the social structures of India at that time, there was a flattening out that, you know, it brought the caste system, you know, within the Buddhist context to an end. So that was one thing. Another thing is, you know, bringing women into the Sangha. Well, thanks to Ananda, Thank <laughs> the Buddha you. resisted at first. Thank you, Ananda. As well, uh, ordaining uh, a serial killer, ordaining uh, so-called untouchables, Mm. and so forth. So, you know, and, and the history of social engagement weaves in and out of uh, the entire history of Buddhism as, as it moves to China, uh, Tibet, uh, Southeast Asia, Japan, and, and now uh, in the West, Europe, and, and the United States, and the Americas. Mm. So um, I, I think that there's, you know, powerful precedent for this. Some of the most interesting socially engaged Buddhists um, in fact, we're not in the sort of Mahayana school, which is the school associated with compassion and the bodhisattvas, but um, our uh, contemporary Theravadins like Sulakshivaraksha or Ariyatni, um, Ari, uh, really incredible uh, individuals, or you know, all those in the, the Dalit community, including Ambedkar. So, you know, we've got, we're in a very interesting time where, you know, some people are quite resistant to this process of social and environmental responsibility and engagement. Um, and I, I, you know, so be it. Um, I, I have deep respect for uh, monastics and those who choose a more solitary, less socially engaged path. But I also feel that we're a global community at this time and that um, we can work together to actually shift tendencies that have arisen, particularly within the past 100 years, you know, and with the advent, you know, more recently of technology, you know, to shift some of the more toxic streams of uh, economic oppression and social oppression that are now ramping up in our lived experience in terms of climate change and, and in terms of millions of refugees who are both war and climate refugees. You know, thousands at our very border, for example, this very day, escaping uh, the, the suffering of the nations that they're living in as if our nation is free of suffering. So, you know, it's a very interesting time 
for us to actually, you know, be in the landscape of social and environmental engagement. At the same time, um, it's also, I feel, a kind of imperative for us to learn how to work with uh, the internal forces that um, feed more problematic uh, responses to the world of suffering. And that's where practice, I think, uh, plays a really important part, but also where beloved community, if we can use this beautiful term from Dr. King, how our relationships with each other, you know, become uh, a powerful, skillful means for not only social and environmental transformation, but for our personal transformation as well. Mm. On page 198 of The Fruitful Darkness, you talk about um, this 89th case of the Blue Cliff Records, one of the koans. And how does the, the question is, uh, Yunyan asked Awu, how does the Bodhisattva Kenzian use all those many hands and eyes? And Dawu replies, it is like someone adjusting their pillow at night. It's, and I'm speaking about compassion right now in the way that you're speaking about it. You don't really have to think about it to adjust your pillow at night. You just do what you're doing. You move your pillow so that your head is comfortable. You're still kind of asleep or you're in some sort of sleep state and you are comfortable again. You fall back asleep. Compassion is a natural response to the world, you say. And it's beyond conception, it's beyond rational mind. And I think what I'm gathering from what you've just said is that we have to operate from there so naturally, so organically that when it's time to make phone calls and help get somebody elected, you do. And when it's time to sit still and collect yourself and find your uh, mind ground, as you referenced it, uh, you'll know when that time comes as well. Is that accurate? You know, that's a beautiful way of uh, saying it. Elena, I, you know, I'm a little hesitant ever to say anything is accurate. Right, of course. But that, as you're articulating it, that is the perspective um, that, I, that I hold. Hmm. And that um, compassion can't be predicted. Yeah. Um, there's no algorithm per se um, that uh, if this happens, that should happen. Um, it's more that is, uh, it's characterized by emergence, it's inactive, it's context engaged, it's not dissociated from context, and it follows no rules. And I, I love this, these words by Francisco Varela, my, my uh, good friend who died in 2001, who was a neuroscientist and philosopher and Buddhist. He said it should not be surprising that one of the characteristics of spontaneous compassion, which is not characteristic of volitional action based on habitual patterns, is that it follows no rules. Compassion mm. doesn't follow rules. Yeah. And I think this is a very radical uh, perspective that Francisco articulated years ago. And also it obviates this notion that um, the mind-brain, uh, but the mind is a prediction machine, you know, that um, we, we can anticipate what is happening next. And as you said, one of the things that you um, uh, really opened up, that opened up for you was this um, vision of not knowing. What mm -hmm. is it to really 
drop into a place where uh, where where you can be surprised, where you're open, where your opinions aren't mediating your experience of your of the present moment. Yeah, it's helped me so much as a parent of a teenager. I cannot express in words what has shifted here to not know. Well, tell tell me. I know you can't express in words, but I'd I'd love to hear, you know, say a little bit more. Because, you know, this is one of the things, you know, our identities are so bound up in being uh, knowledge people, you know, uh, being able, you know, we have opinions, there's facts, there's science. And, you know, and this was one of the things about Perella that was just so fascinating is that, you know, he, he had this enormous mind brain. And it was crammed with data, but he had this capacity to really sit with openness and, you know, to be asking um, novel questions. So, yes. And to answer that question, I think what it's done is help me stop needing my kid to be anything other than who he is in the moment. And to that end, I'm able to support not just him, but also his friends with an open mind and an open heart and many, many rides because the other parents don't want to drive anybody anywhere, but I've never driven anyone anywhere before. It's been 15 years of subways, so I'm more than happy to be the chauffeur for hours. And I sit with these boys and I'm able to hear them without judging them, without freaking out that they're going to get in trouble or do something terrible and just be with them. And they feel it and they trust me and they tell me things. And it is tremendous. Well, now I'm really curious. Tell me one of the juiciest they tell you things. What I they promised I wouldn't tell. I promise. Uh-oh. But when I see you in person, I can share with you. It's it, okay. it, it involves, you know, activities that they're doing that I, I just... Ah. Yeah, it's such a fascinating pickle that I'm in because I myself have opinions about said activities, but I can at least guide them into using your brain and making sure that this is happening and that's safe and this is happening. And, you know, it, it, I can help them because I have no idea and I have no interest in knowing. I just want to be of service. That's so fantastic. Maybe this is the best advice parents could ever received. <laughs> it could be. It you know? could be. <laughs> but it leads me, it leads me actually, because I, I want to be respectful of our time because we're both in a class this weekend. My listener, the next time Upaya releases a class called Zen Crones, just say yes, go in there, make a donation of any amount and take the class because it is changing my life as we speak. And it starts in like 15 minutes. So we're going to wrap up quickly. Um, your book, Standing at the Edge is a sort of a, a recounting and an explanation of five different what you call edge states. And mm. the, the previous discussion leads me into respect and, and a couple of other ones too. But the five states are, for our listener, altruism, empathy, integrity, respect, and engagement. Each one of these states has a high edge, which is when we're just in the flow and this particular state is serving not just us, but those around us and anyone whom we're touching in any way, virtually or real or in reality. And then it has the time when you fall over the edge into over engagement, disrespect, uh, non 
compassionate thinking, a, a, a sheer lack of empathy. Um, altruism, the, the falling over the edge, is overly giving of yourself. I know there's a listener of ours right now who, who can identify with that. But the book is called Standing at the Edge, and I want to make sure that anyone who comes into contact with my work explores it because it will help save you years, I'm not exaggerating, of your <laughs> life trying to figure out how to stop doing this one activity that makes you sad and makes everyone around you sad. You'll just realize, oh, I just went over the edge. I'm going to pull it back. Can you speak to how this book came about? You know, um, I, I think it came about really because I have fallen over all of those edges. And um, yes, I, I've interacted with probably now thousands of healthcare workers and uh, people in human rights organizations and so forth who are really struggling. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think I could have written the book authentically if I hadn't have known personally the shadow side of altruism, which is pathological altruism, empathy, which is empathic distress, yes, integrity, which is moral suffering, uh, the shadow side. And the shadow side of respect, of course, disrespect and engagement. The shadow side is uh, burnout. And, you know, I wrote it in a certain way to process my own experience in service to others. And it was really helpful for me personally, but also I, I just have encountered so many challenges uh, that were shared with me by people who are in service to others. And so as a result of that, the book came about. But it also came about because I've been exploring this landscape of compassion as a lived experience, but also from the point of view of neuroscience and social psychology for many decades. Mm. And I was aware that there is, you know, an increasing deficit of compassion in the field of healthcare, and uh, the cost of that in the lives of caregivers be was becoming increasingly obvious to me. And what I did was um, create this heuristic map of compassion. Not, I'm not going to go into the whole uh, explanation of it, sure. but um, I realized that actually compassion is, if you will. Uh, the way that we can leverage ourselves out of the shadow side of these edge states. Yeah. And so that's what the book is focused on. And um, I have a, a student who is a very extraordinary palliative care physician in Texas who is slammed right now. And I think over the past year and a half, since the beginning of the pandemic, she has distributed several hundred copies of Standing at the Edge to people, mm -hmm. you know, her, her students, the residents, interns, and her colleagues, you know, at the big university where she is serving. Right. So, you know, it's, I, I think it's a book that's incredibly useful. I hope it is, but it was incredibly useful for me to write because yeah. it helped me sent, become more sensitive to the traps that I fall into. I want to sort of start to wrap us up, um, but we're on page 238 for our listener uh, of Standing at the Edge in the hardcover. From this point, you have used the model 
that I'm about to talk about to train clinicians, chaplaincy students, educators, lawyers, business people in how to foster a field within and around themselves where compassion can be actualized. And I'm being very specific here because I know that we have caregivers, we have uh, clinicians, doctors, nurses, many of whom listen to this podcast. We prepare the field, you say, bottom of page 238, for the emergence of compassion through training our faculties of completely non-compassion things. They are, write this down, attention, cultivating pro-social qualities, and an unselfish intention, developing our capacity for discernment and insight, and creating the conditions for ethical and caring engagement. And you created what's called the abide model of compassion. You love a mnemonic, which I really appreciate. I used it my whole childhood to pass tests. A in abide is attention and affect, which means having a pro-social affect. The B is uh, balance, of course. The I is intention and also insight. The D is discernment. And the E points to embodiment and engagement. And you can see how they sort of toggle back and forth between something very precise and very much an action and then very much sort of an opening. Um, and I want to thank you for this because this is part of how subconsciously now, it used to be conscious, but subconsciously now I'm able to summon this quality of compassion within myself without having to think, oh, I need to be a better person. No, in fact, mm -hmm. it's pro so it's it's just certain qualities that don't have anything to do with compassion. When you put them together, you have the emergence of that. Well, thank you so much. I I um yeah, again, uh I, what I recognized, Elena, was that uh it's not so easy to train people in compassion. Right. And as I began to uh, open up this landscape of compassion, I recognized that compassion is actually composed of a suite of qualities or features that are non-compassion, like attention, like uh, the word balance refers both to uh, attentional balance and emotional balance, um, insight, uh, and so forth. And that actually those the suite of those qualities, <clears throat> each of those qualities we can train in, but the whole thing of compassion, you know, as a kind of uh, macro, all-embracing process, um, training in it is not possible unless you have these qualities primed. Right. So that was like a big wake-up call for me. But, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh said it in another way you know, when he was you know, looking at a flower and saying a flower is made of non-flower elements. Mm -hmm. Compassion is made of non-compassion elements. So, you know, it was a, it was like, oh. And out of that, Elena, I then developed a tool called grace, yes. which you know about, which um, is, you know, one of these wonderful, uh, um, uh, skillful means in your back pocket in mnemonic, which I love, the grace is gathering your attention. The R of grace, the G of grace is gathering your attention. The R of grace is recalling your intention. The A of grace is attuning to yourself and then attuning to another. 
The C of grace is considering what will really serve. And the E of grace is first engaging and then ending. Mm. So it's like, you know, and and it's been really so uh, edifying to, you know, share this work now with so many people. um, Because, again, it's accessible, it's logical, and it makes compassion more transparent. Mm -hmm. I... I'm going to humbly ask you to consider coming back <laughs> I'd to talk love to. more about Grace. What's weird is that when my marriage ended and, and my son's father and I are still very, very close, he's actually been on the podcast, he's a doctor, you'd love him. His name is Anthony, I had an A on my wrist and when the marriage ended, we both changed our tattoos. His E became a lion and my A became the word Grace. So <laughs> it's on my body <laughs> and wow. I look at it all the time. And it's how, when I teach uh, free meditation every Wednesday, it's the general gist and container in which I teach. So I can't thank you enough. Let's go to class and learn more about the Zen Crones for now until the next time. I am so grateful and I cannot wait to spend more time in person at some point soon. Same here. May Mm. um, we all keep safe Mm. in these coming times and uh, exercise compassion by taking care of the bodies that we're related to interacting with in our own by respecting science and coming from a place of love. Yes. Thank you, Elena, for the work that you do in the world. I look forward to seeing you more personally once this thing is over, this pandemic yes. is dialed yes. down. Yes. Thank you. Thank you again. I'll see you in class. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and 5 
free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.